Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 27 Sometime in the afternoon I raised my head, and looking round and seeing the western sun gilding the sign of its decline on the wall, I asked, What am I to do? But the answer my mind gave, Leave Thornfield at once was so prompt, so dread, that I stopped my ears. I said I could not bear such words now. That I am not Edward Rochester's bride is the least part of my woe, I alleged, that I have wakened out of the most glorious dreams and found them all void and vain is a horror I could bear and master, but that I must leave him decidedly, instantly, entirely, is intolerable. I cannot do it. But then a voice within me averred that I could do it, and foretold that I should do it. I wrestled with my inner resolution. I wanted to be weak, that I might avoid the awful passage of further suffering I saw laid out before me. And conscience turned tyrant held passion by the throat, told her tauntingly she had yet but dipped her dainty foot in the slough, and swore that with that arm of iron he would thrust her down to unsounded depths of agony. "'Let me be torn away, then,' I cried. "'Let another help me.' "'No. You shall tear yourself away. None shall help you.' You shall yourself pluck out your right eye, yourself cut off your right hand, your heart shall be the victim, and you the priest to transfix it. I rose up suddenly, terror struck at the solitude which so ruthless a judge haunted, at the silence which so awful a voice filled. My head swam as I stood erect. I perceived that I was sickening from excitement and inanition. Neither meat nor drink had passed my lips that day, for I had taken no breakfast, and, with a strange pang, I now reflected that, long as I had been shut up here, no message had been sent to ask how I was or to invite me to come down. Not even little Adele had tapped at the door, not even Mrs. Fairfax had sought me. Friends always forget those whom fortune forsakes, I murmured, as I undrew the bolt and passed out. I stumbled over an obstacle. My head was still dizzy, my sight was dim, and my limbs were feeble. I could not soon recover myself. I fell, but not on the ground. An outstretched arm caught me. I looked up. I was supported by Mr. Rochester 
who sat in a chair across my chamber threshold. You come out at last, he said. Well, I have been waiting for you long and listening. Yet not one movement have I heard, nor one sob. Five minutes more of that death-like hush, and I should have forced the lock like a burglar. So you shun me. You shut yourself up and grieve alone. I would rather you had come and abraded me with vehemence. You are passionate. I expected a scene of some kind. I was prepared for the hot rain of tears, only I wanted them to be shed on my breast. Now a senseless floor has received them, or your drenched handkerchief, but I err. You have not wept at all. I see a white cheek and a faded eye, but no trace of tears. I suppose, then, your heart has been weeping blood. Well, Jane, not a word of reproach, nothing bitter, nothing poignant, nothing to cut a feeling or sting a passion. You sit quietly where I have placed you and regard me with a weary, passive look. Jane, I never meant to wound you thus. If the man who had but one little ewe lamb that was dear to him as a daughter that ate of his bread and drank of his cup and lay in his bosom had by some mistake slaughtered it at the shambles, he would not have rued his bloody blunder more than I now rue mine. Will you forgive me? Reader, I forgave him at the moment and on the spot. There was such deep remorse in his eye, such true pity in his tone, such manly energy in his manner, and besides there was such unchanged love in his whole look and mien. I forgave him all, yet not in words, not outwardly, only in my heart's core. You know I am a scoundrel, Jane. Ere long he inquired wistfully, wondering, I suppose, at my continued silence and tameness, the result rather of weakness than of will. Yes, sir. Then tell me so roundly and sharply. Don't spare me. I cannot. I'm tired and sick. I want some water. He heaved a sort of shuddering sigh, and taking me in his arms carried me downstairs. At first I did not know to what room he had borne me. All was cloudy to my glazed sight. Presently I felt the reviving warmth of a fire, for summer as it was, I had become icy cold in my chamber. He put wine to my lips. I tasted it and revived. Then I ate something he offered me and was soon myself. I was in the library, sitting in his chair. He was quite near. If I could go out of life now, without too sharp a pang, it would be well for me, I thought. Then I should not have to make the effort of cracking my heartstrings in rending them from among Mr. Rochester's. I must leave him, it appears. I do not want to leave him. I cannot leave him. How are you now, Jane? Much better, sir. I shall be well soon. Taste the wine again, Jane. I obeyed him. 
Then he put the glass on the table, stood before me, and looked at me attentively. Suddenly he turned away, with an inarticulate exclamation full of passionate emotion of some kind. He walked fast through the room and came back. He stooped towards me as if to kiss me, but I remembered caresses were now forbidden. I turned my face away and put his aside. What? How is this? he exclaimed hastily. Oh, I know you won't kiss the husband of Bertha Mason. You consider my arms filled and my embraces appropriated. At any rate, there is neither room nor claim for me, sir. Why, Jane? I will spare you the trouble of much talking. I will answer for you. Because I have a wife already, you would reply. I guess rightly. Yes. If you think so, you must have a strange opinion of me. You must regard me as a plotting profligate, a base and low rake who has been simulating disinterested love in order to draw you into a snare deliberately laid and strip you of your honor and rob you of self-respect. What do you say to that? I see you can say nothing. In the first place, you are faint still and have enough to do to draw your breath. In the second place, you cannot yet accustom yourself to accuse and revile me. And besides, the floodgates of tears are opened, and they would rush out if you spoke much. And you have no desire to expostulate, to abrade, to make a scene. You are thinking how to act. Talking, you consider, is of no use. I know you. I am on my guard. Sir, I do not wish to act against you. I said, and my unsteady voice warned me to curtail my sentence. Not in your sense of the word but in mine. You are scheming to destroy me. You have as good as said that I am a married man. As a married man, you will shun me. Keep out of my way. Just now you have refused to kiss me. You intend to make yourself a complete stranger to me, to live under this roof only as Adele's governess. If ever I say a friendly word to you, if ever friendly feeling inclines you again to me, you will say, That man had nearly made me his mistress. I must be ice and rock to him. And ice and rock you will accordingly become. I cleared and steadied my voice to reply. All is changed about me, sir. I must change, too. There is no doubt of that and to avoid fluctuations of feelings and continual combats with recollections and associations, there is only one way. Adele must have a new governess, sir. Oh, Adele will go to school. I have settled that already. Nor do I mean to torment you with the hideous associations and recollections of Thornfield Hall, this accursed place, this tent of Akin, this insolent vault offering the ghastliness of living death to the light of the open sky, this narrow stone hell, with its one real fiend worse than a legion of such as we imagine. Jane, you shall not stay here, nor will I. I was wrong ever to bring you to Thornfield Hall, knowing as I did how it was haunted. I charged them to conceal from you before I ever saw you all knowledge of the curse of the place. 
merely because I feared Adele, never would have a governess to stay if she knew with what inmate she was housed, and my plans would not permit me to remove the maniac elsewhere, though I possess an old house, Ferndean Manor, even more retired and hidden than this, where I could have lodged her safely enough, had not a scruple about the unhealthiness of the situation, in the heart of the wood, made my conscience recoil from the arrangement. Probably those damp walls would soon have eased me of her charge. But to each villain his own vice, and mine is not a tendency to indirect assassination even of what I most hate. Concealing the madwoman's neighborhood from you, however, was something like covering a child with a cloak and laying it down near an upas tree. That demon's vicinage is poisoned, and always was. But I'll shut up Thornfield Hall. I'll nail up the front door and board the lower windows. I'll give Mrs. Poole two hundred a year to live here with my wife, as you term that fearful hag. Grace will do much for money, and she shall have her son, the keeper at Grimsby Retreat, to bear her company and be at hand to give her aid in the paroxysms when my wife is prompted by her familiar to burn people in their beds at night, to stab them, to bite their flesh from their bones, and so on. Sir, I interrupted him. You are inexorable for that unfortunate lady. You speak of her with hate, with vindictive antipathy. It is cruel. She cannot help being mad. Jane, my little darling, so I will call you, for so you are. You don't know what you are talking about. You misjudge me again. It is not because she is mad I hate her. If you were mad, do you think I should hate you? I do indeed, sir. Then you are mistaken, and you know nothing about me, and nothing about the sort of love of which I am capable. Every atom of your flesh is as dear to me as my own. In pain and sickness it would still be dear. Your mind is my treasure, and if it were broken, it would be my treasure still. If you raved, my arms should confine you, and not a straight waistcoat. Your grasp, even in fury, would have a charm for me. If you flew at me as wildly as that woman did this morning, I should receive you in an embrace at least as fond as it would be restrictive. I should not shrink from you with disgust as I did from her. In your quiet moments you should have no watcher and no nurse but me. And I could hang over you with untiring tenderness, though you gave me no smile in return, and never weary of gazing into your eyes, though they had no longer a ray of recognition for me. But why do I follow that train of ideas? I was talking of removing you from Thornfield. All you know is prepared for prompt departure. Tomorrow you shall go. I only ask you to endure one more night under this roof chain, and then farewell to its miseries and terrors forever. I have a place to repair to, which will be a secure sanctuary from hateful reminiscences, from unwelcome intrusion, even from falsehood and slander. And take Adele with you, sir. I interrupted. She will be a companion for you. What do you mean, Jane? I told you I would send Adele to school. And what do I want with a child for a companion and not my own child? 
French dancer's bastard. Why do you importune me about her? I say, why do you assign Adele to me for a companion? You spoke of retirement, sir, and retirement and solitude are dull. Too dull for you. Solitude, solitude! He reiterated with irritation. I see I must come to an explanation. I don't know what sphinx-like expression is forming in your countenance. You are to share my solitude. Do you understand? I shook my head. It required a degree of courage, excited as he was becoming, even to risk that mute sign of dissent. He had been walking fast about the room, and he stopped as if suddenly rooted to one spot. He looked at me long and hard. I turned my eyes from him, fixed them on the fire, and tried to assume and maintain a quiet, collected aspect. Now for the Hitch and Jane's character, he said at last, speaking more calmly than from his look I had expected him to speak. The reel of silk has run smoothly enough so far, but I always knew there would come a knot and a puzzle. Here it is. Now for vexation and exasperation and endless trouble. By God, I long to exert a fraction of Samson's strength and break the entanglement like toe. He recommenced his walk, but soon again stopped, and this time just before me. Jane, will you hear reason? He stooped and approached his lips to my ear. Because if you won't, I'll try violence. His voice was hoarse, his look that of a man who is just about to burst an insufferable bond and plunge headlong into wild license. I saw that in another moment, and with one impetus of frenzy more, I should be able to do nothing with him. The present, the passing second of time, was all I had in which to control and restrain him. A movement of repulsion, flight, fear, would have sealed my doom and his. But I was not afraid, not in the least. I felt an inward power, a sense of influence which supported me. The crisis was perilous, but not without its charm, such as the Indian perhaps feels when he slips over the rapid in his canoe. I took hold of his clenched hand, loosened the contorted fingers, and said to him soothingly, Sit down. I'll talk to you as long as you like and hear all you have to say, whether reasonable or unreasonable. He sat down, but he did not get leave to speak directly. I had been struggling with tears for some time. I had taken great pains to repress them, because I knew he would not like to see me weep. Now, however, I considered it well to let them flow as freely and as long as they liked. If the flood annoyed him, so much the better. So I gave way, and cried heartily. Soon I heard him earnestly entreating me to be composed. I said I could not while he was in such a passion. But I'm not angry, Jane. I only love you too well. And you had steeled your little pale face with such a resolute frozen look I could not endure it. Hush now, and wipe your eyes. His softened voice announced 
that he was subdued. So I, in my turn, became calm. Now he made an effort to rest his head on my shoulder, but I would not permit it. Then he would draw me to him. No. Jane, Jane, he said in such an accent of bitter sadness, it thrilled along every nerve I had. You don't love me, then, and was only my station and the rank of my wife that you valued. Now that you think me disqualified to become your husband, you recoil from my touch as if I were some toad or ape. These words cut me. Yet what could I do or say? I ought probably to have done or said nothing. But I was so tortured by a sense of remorse that, thus hurting his feelings, I could not control the wish to drop balm where I had wounded. I do love you, I said. More than ever, but I must not show or indulge the feeling. And this is the last time I must express it. The last time, Jane, what do you think you can live with me and see me daily? And yet, if you still love me, be always cold and distant. No, sir. That I am certain I could not do, and therefore I see there is but one way. But you will be furious if I mention it. Oh, mention it if I storm you have the art of weeping. Mr. Rochester, I must leave you. For how long, Jane? For a few minutes will you smooth your hair, which is somewhat disheveled, and bathe your face, which looks feverish? I must leave Adele and Thornfield. I must part with you for my whole life. I must begin a new existence among strange faces and strange scenes. Of course, I told you, you should. I pass over the madness about parting from me. You mean you must become a part of me. As to the new existence, it is all right. You shall yet be my wife. I am not married. You shall be Mrs. Rochester, both virtually and nominally. I shall keep only to you as long as you and I live. You shall go to a place I have in the south of France, a whitewashed villa on the shores of the Mediterranean. There you shall live a happy and guarded and most innocent life. Never fear that I wish to lure you into error, to make you my mistress. Why did you shake your head? Jane, you must be reasonable, or in truth I shall again become frantic. His voice and hand quivered. His large nostrils dilated. His eyes blazed. Still, I dared to speak. Sir, your wife is living. That is a fact acknowledged this morning by yourself. If I lived with you as you desire, I should then be your mistress. To say otherwise is sophistical, is false. Jane, I am not a gentle-tempered man. You forget that. I am not long-enduring. I am not cool and dispassionate. Out of pity to me and yourself, put your finger on my pulse, feel how it throbs, and beware. He bared his wrist and offered it to me. 
The blood was forsaking his cheek and lips. They were growing livid. I was distressed on all hands. To agitate him thus deeply by a resistance he so abhorred was cruel. To yield was out of the question. I did what human beings do instinctively when they are driven to utter extremity. I looked for aid to one higher than man. The words, God help me, burst involuntarily from my lips. I am a fool, cried Mr. Rochester suddenly. I keep telling her I am not married and do not explain to her why. I forget she knows nothing of the character of that woman or of the circumstances attending my infernal union with her. Oh, I am certain Jane will agree with me in opinion when she knows all that I know. Just put your hand in mine, Janet, that I may have the evidence of touch as well as sight to prove you are near me, and I will, in a few words, show you the real state of the case. To be continued. Hey, I wanted to let you know about a new partnership that Definitely Storytime has with a company called Salty Llama. You may have seen them in the news or advertised by real people on social media. They are focused on sustainability around one of our biggest pollution challenges, laundry. Now, I know I don't like lugging those heavy and wasteful jugs around, measuring, spilling, the drippy goo around the opening and the cap, the bother of trying to get the last bit out of the container because you don't want to waste it, then having to put that monster jug in the recycling where it takes up a lot of space in the bin and probably isn't even being recycled because so few plastics actually are. Well, I'm here with good news. We can spare ourselves all of that hassle and waste with Salty Llama laundry sheets. They are made from natural ingredients. There's even one for sensitive skin. They come in a compostable fiber-based sleeve and are super light for you and to transport as they produce only 4% of the CO2 emissions of regular laundry detergent transportation. And even better, they are pre-measured for small, medium, and large loads, so you just have to tear off the size you need. No waste, no goo, no spills and drips, no turning the bottle upside down waiting for a slow drizzle to get the last bit out. None of that. And if you aren't totally convinced, it is risk-free because they have a 100% money-back guarantee, no questions asked, and free shipping throughout the U.S., U.K., and Europe, all because they care and are committed to helping our planet. So head over to saltylama.com, 1L, a direct link can be found in with my other links in the podcast description, and you can use my affiliate code, definitely storytime, no spaces, for 10% off to help you, and I mean all of us, really. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family. And if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime. <laughs>